0: out in here, grab your Bible. <clears throat> Make way to the Gospel of Matthew. First Gospel of the New Testament will be in chapter 16. And we're looking at verses 13 through 20 this morning on what is known as the Confession of Peter or Peter's Confession. It's also a passage which we can find in the Gospel of Mark. You can find it in the Gospel of Luke. It's a passage many of us are probably familiar with, at least heard of it. If you were here on Easter, we dealt a little bit with this passage, but this morning we're going to have the opportunity to get into it deeper. I uh, set this passage up, Jesus has uh, been trying to wake up his disciples spiritually. Uh, they just weren't seeming to get the message and the discipleship process and learning about who He is and how they were going to be set apart for the work of the ministry after He left. Um, he's wanting them to begin seeing things differently. Than some of the peers that were around them, some of the people that were in the crowds that came to follow Jesus, especially differently than the religious leaders of this day. So to do this, what Jesus does is he takes them on a field trip once again into a heavily Gentile populated area. Uh, My wife... Uh, and the third graders went on a field trip this last week, and I always begin the week off with my wife, almost telling her every Monday morning when she gets to school, you should just throw a pop quiz on them. Um, you know, just give them a test right off the bat. Don't even warn them. And so if you have a child that is just getting a into third grade and they end up having Mrs. Hurchin, and they come home on a Monday in tears, don't email her. You can probably blame me for it because I finally convinced her Uh, You can know it's the pastor's fault. In our passage this morning, Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip to an unlikely location, and he delivers a pop quiz on them. And I guess it's another reason why I love Jesus. The focus of the question leads to the understanding of the power of the church. Now, I don't know what your view of church is. I know that we're gathered here in what is considered a church building. Uh, When I grew up, my dad was a pastor, and so we went to church Every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, whenever it's vacation Bible school, we'd be at church, we'd be in Sunday school. Um, but even as a child and growing up, I didn't realize what the church actually was until I became what I would consider an adult. The church defined by Scripture isn't just a place where people gather together and we sing a few songs and we listen to someone preach a sermon or teach a lesson and then we go home to lunch. The church... Is isn't a place, according to Scripture, that is marked by an address or is confined to a building. The church is a place of power. It is what is typically known as the confession of Peter in Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus rele- re- Jesus lets us know that the church is a place of power, something the disciples are going to fail to grasp until after the resurrection and into the book of Acts. But something this morning, because of Jesus' teaching here, we can learn That we're in a place of power. Matthew chapter 16, let's read it 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets, and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? That he was the Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you we can gather in your name. We can be in your presence. We can lift songs up to you of how much you've loved us and how much we love you and your faithfulness. Father, we come before you and we want to submit our souls, our hearts, and our minds to you in this moment. That we would be changed, that your spirit would come upon us in a magnificent and mighty way. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that your spirit would come upon them, that they would come to that realization today could be the day of their salvation. Pray as we walk through your word in this time that you alone be glorified, your kingdom and will are the only things to be done in this place. And so move me out of the way, Lord. It's not about me, it's about you. We want to lift you up and understand what this place, when we gather in your name to form the church, what this is all about. So God, lead us, be our shepherd. Forgive us if we failed you in any way. We praise in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I mentioned, we looked at this passage briefly back on Easter, but we really didn't have the time to get into the depths of everything that is being taught here from Jesus and referring to the question, So Jesus' disciples have left Bethsaida after Jesus had healed the blind man, which we looked at last week, and it'll be up on the podcast later this week. And they head 25 miles north to a district or region known as Caesarea Philippi. This area was still technically in the region of Galilee, but it was densely populated by Gentiles. It would appear Jesus is wanting to get away from the crowds once again. We've seen him do this periodically where he's tried to get away from the crowds with his disciples, uh, particularly when he went to the feeding of the 5,000, and the crowds just continued to be drawn to Jesus. This location sets up the question, and eventually the statement by Jesus is, in this area there was a Greek temple dedicated to the Greek god Pan. And because of this, we can know that this area was a a herd and cattle type of area. There were flocks in this area because Pan was believed to be the god of herds and flocks. It's also in this location that Philip the Tetrarch built a temple to Caesar Augustus so that he could also be worshipped in the area. Again, a reminder for us that it's a heavily Gentile populated area filled with idolatry and filled with idol worship. And since Jesus has been traveling with disciples for some time now, they've been with him, they've been learning, they've been seeing what he's able to do. He takes in this moment to stop and ask them a question. What are people saying about me? We might want to refer to it as what is the word on the street. The title son of man there in verse 13. Is one of Jesus' favorite titles concerning himself when he speaks about himself. It's taken from the prophecies of Daniel and Isaiah to reveal that Jesus came as the humble and suffering servant, but also he came as a glorious king coming to restore God's kingdom on earth. With the disciples' response, we can gather there was some confusion about who he was, some confusion about his identity Even though Jesus had been ministering to people, healing people, casting out demons, doing miracles, people still couldn't figure out, okay, who is he? Why is he so different? Those who believe that Jesus was John the Baptist there in verse 14, they've been individuals who have been impacted by Herod the Tetrarch's claim from chapter 14. They were told that Herod feared Jesus. Because he had John the Baptist beheaded and he believed that John the Baptist had been resurrected from the dead and now was this man Jesus. For those who believed that Jesus was Elijah, they would have seen him as the forerunner of the Christ or the Messiah. In other words, they didn't believe that Jesus was, was the Christ. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And Jesus would point out in his ministry that John the Baptist was actually the form of Elijah preparing the way for his ministry. For those who believed that Jesus was Jeremiah, they would have believed that his mission was to come and to speak judgment over God's temple and over God's people. And Jesus did pronounce judgment over Jerusalem at one point in time. He did pronounce judgment over the temple, but he was obviously not the resurrected Jeremiah. Then there are those who thought maybe he was just one of the other prophets, meaning they, they couldn't quite figure him out. They knew he was different. And believing that he was a prophet, they believed he was from God, he spoke on behalf of God, he was special. The problem is is they didn't see Jesus for who he truly was and what he came to do. So after asking his disciples, so what are people saying about me, he makes a more direct question. Verse 15, but who do you say that I am? And this is the very question that every individual on this planet has to answer about Jesus Christ. Who do you say I am? Now, who does your mom or your dad, your aunt or uncle, grandparents? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a great man? Is he a great teacher? Is he sent from God? Is he only a healer and a miracle worker? Or is he more? As people are trying to figure this out, we have to keep in mind the disciples, even though they've been with Jesus, they're also trying to figure this out. They're trying to figure out who is this man that we are now following. times in the Gospels, we we read that the disciples received this divine revelation concerning Jesus' identity, and they make a proclamation about it, but they fail to fully see who Jesus was. They would ask each other questions throughout the gospel. Could this be the Messiah? They would ask questions like, how in the world does this man control the wind and the waves? And so even with all the time that they had spent with Jesus, they had failed to get it fully. And the Bible reveals they're not going to fully understand it until after Jesus' resurrection and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. But with the question, who do you say that I am? Well, 16, verse 16, Peter pipes up. And Peter is known to do this on behalf of the disciples. As as I've mentioned in the past, Peter seems to be the spokesperson of the disciples, most likely because he was older, and sometimes he did it right, and sometimes he did it wrong, but here's the thing he's not afraid to at least take on the question. And as Jesus' disciples are in this area where these two idol temples, Peter says, You are the Christ. The son of the living God. And that is a massive statement that Peter is making. He's, he's saying that Jesus is in fact the Messiah that has been spoken of by the prophets of old. In what we call the Old Testament, he's saying that Jesus is the anointed one of God who's come to save the world. He is saying that, Jesus, you are the living and breathing covenantal promise that was given to Abraham and is given to David, which Matthew actually opens up his gospel in chapter 1, verse 1, pointing to that truth about who Jesus was and his identity. Mark and Luke both have this exchange between Jesus and the disciples. But Matthew, we're in Matthew because Matthew gives us a little bit more of what Peter said. Not only does it say that you are the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the one we've been waiting for, he says you are the Son of the living God. So we have to deal with the attribute of Jesus being the Son of God. To say Jesus is the Son of God is to say that He is of the same nature of God, that He has the full authority of God upon Him and says that He is the full embodiment of the deity of God in flesh, which is what the Gospel of John tells us, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. To say God is living is important as we've talked about in this area. As they're now in this region of two temples, two false gods, not living gods. But he says, you are the son of the living God. It's after this confession that Jesus pronounces a blessing upon Peter in verse 17. He says, you are Simon Barjona, which means you are Simon, son of John. And then Jesus reveals to Peter how he was able to get to this conclusion It wasn't by human efforts, that's what flesh and blood is pointing to, but instead Peter had inside help. It was God who brought Peter to this place, to this understanding. So one thing when it comes to sharing the gospel, because we all should have a desire for people to be saved, we have to understand it's not about head knowledge. It's not about entering into a debate. It's not even about handing out tracts. And and those are some good resources. But the reality is the power of the church is through the Holy Spirit. If you ever gotten frustrated with sharing the gospel with someone or, or, or trying to be an example of Jesus to someone else so that they too can have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but for some reason they're not getting there, the answer is right here in Matthew chapter 16. Perhaps when we're sharing the gospel and trying to live like Jesus or get people to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, the problem is we're doing it in our own power and not in the power that dwells inside of us. For some reason, the God of the heavens and the earth has given us His Spirit to dwell inside of us for the purpose of of we being instruments of His righteousness. But if we're relying upon our power, we're going to fail every time. This goes for individually and it goes for us as a church. The Holy Spirit must be relied upon for the power of the gospel to be accepted. I kind of laugh at myself in the mornings when I wake up because I I grab my watch and I grab my phone and I grab my iPad and I grab my computer and I start putting all this stuff on and I have to laugh because I feel like a cyborg. I've got all this electronic stuff on me. And there's times that sometimes I won't get the watch on the charger correctly. I don't know if you ever had that issue. And so I'll go throughout the day and my watch will buzz and tell me, you got about 10% of battery life left. And I'm confused. I'm thinking, ah, ah, ah. but see, I can't charge my watch with it being on my arm. I, I, it counts my steps, it'll, it'll keep track of my heartbeat. But if I don't plug it in right, it's not going to work right. And the same thing goes for us as God's people. If we're not plugged into the Holy Spirit, we're not allowing it to charge us, then we're not going to work right. The disciples only became effective for the kingdom of God when the Holy Spirit came upon them in the book of Acts, and they were charged. The worship service and the sermon, if it's not relying upon the Holy Spirit, is simply music. And words being spoken. After Peter's confession, Jesus gives him that an a boy. Jesus tells Peter what is going to take place in verse eighteen. If you want to hear Easter, this is not Jesus promoting Peter to be the pope according to Catholic traditions. At the same time, Jesus is telling Peter that he is going to be set aside for an elevated status. And again, when we turn to the book of Acts, we see that Peter becomes pretty much the first pastor in the first Christian church in Jerusalem. He becomes a leader, but the disciples, they had a major role as well. And what's unique about verse 18, it is one of only three times in all four Gospels that the word church is mentioned And actually, the word church can only be found in the Gospel of Matthew. And when you look at that word in the Greek, the word church from the Greek means a gathering of a community of people. Not a building. Not an address. Even though Jesus speaks of building the church, which would seem to imply a structure, the real meaning is that is it is the building of a gathering of people that are going to be built on the confession of Peter. The church is built on the identity of Jesus Christ. And notice what Jesus says after the confession in verse 18. He says, I will build my church. Which means the church doesn't belong to a group of people. The church doesn't belong to an individual or a pastor, or a committee. The church belongs to Christ because it's his. The power of the church is Christ. I've seen in my life when church tends to fail, it's because they fail to remember what the church is. It's God's gathering of people, and it's about Christ Christ. And when they fail to remember it's about Christ, you begin to see churches crumble and begin to argue because they think it's about them. It's about him being proclaimed and glorified. And the church is only a church when it promotes and proclaims the identity of Jesus Christ. It isn't about who's behind the pulpit. It isn't about who's leading the worship songs or even what songs are being sung It isn't about a deacon or an elder or a ministry team. The foundation of the church is very clear here. It is the proclamation of who Jesus Christ is as the son of the living God. That is the focus, and that is therefore the power. The rock is the confession that Peter made. It was not Peter. But through the confession, Jesus reveals the power of the church is over the enemy. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Sometimes we can turn on the news and we see things going on in the world and we can think, Man, there's so much evil. And it just seems to be getting stronger and growing more. You know what the book of Revelation, which is a book of end times, reveals that evil may seem to grow and it may appear to be powerful, but it will not be more powerful than the church. Because the church is founded on who Jesus Christ is, and so when we gather here on Sunday morning, we get to gather in the name of Jesus, and the enemy has no jurisdiction. That's why it's so important we gather together. It's also why it's so dangerous if we stop gathering together. Because we gather in the name of Christ to form the church, and there's power in the church. And when we wander away from the church, we put ourselves in danger of the enemy's attacks. The other time the word church is used in Scripture, as I mentioned, comes from the Gospel of Matthew as well. comes out of chapter 18. In chapter 18, which we'll look at here in a couple weeks, the bulk of that passage that deals with the church, where the word church is mentioned twice, is about church discipline. But in that passage and in that teaching about the church, Jesus tells us when God's people gather that we need to gather in his presence, not just with one another, but in the presence of God. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, here's the promise, there I am among them. God's people gather to form the church. We aren't just gathering as a company of believers, but we're gathering in the company of Christ, which is why Satan has no authority or power in the church. He has been defeated through the death and the resurrection of Christ. And coming to verse 19, Jesus tells Peter and the disciples about what is to come. We have to keep in mind that Peter hasn't gotten to the place or the disciples where he's fully understanding what Jesus is saying. And we're going to see that next week in the very next passage. But Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This is future tense. It's meant to be read that way. He's implied what's going to happen later on. When he ascends into heaven and the Spirit comes upon him, he's pointing, this is what you're going to do. You're going to get the keys of the kingdom so you can carry on the ministry. That's what the church is called to do. I remember when Ethan first got his uh, driving permit. and The first time I had to hand him the keys to the car. Talk about praying a lot. (laughs) And before we pulled out, I told him, you know, what to do and what not to do. I gave him instructions where we we're going to drive, where we're not going to drive, and I can remember him pulling out. And if you've had a kid that's already gotten their license, and you're sitting there in the passenger seat, because I'm the typical driver. In the family, and I'm sitting in this passenger seat as Ethan begins pulling down the road. I remember my foot was pressed so hard against the floorboard because in that moment I realized that he was in control of a vehicle which is going to mean whether we're going to live or die. And I'm trusting him. Jesus is telling Peter and the disciples in this moment, when they gather together as the church, they're not in the driver's seat but they're going to be given the power and authority as a church on who is going to live and who is going to die. The power of the church is the ministry. And the word ministry in Scripture means many things. It implies Bible study. It implies discipleship. It implies evangelism and taking care of people. It implies outreach and feeding people and taking care of the poor and showing hospitality to pray for others and to love others. All that is ministry and the church is gathered for the sake of ministry. And so if, when we gather if we ever stop doing ministry then here's the thing we fail to become the church. Instead we become a social country club. And Paul would have to write to some churches later in the New Testament who failed to stop reaching out to people with the gospel message and the love of Christ. He had to say, "Look, You're not focused on what you are called to be as the church. You're focused on yourself. They thought the church was all about them. And so Paul had to write and remind them that the church gathers and it's all about Christ. And the ministry of Christ. And the ministry for the kingdom. One tactic I've seen the enemy use within the ministry is to make the gathering of God's people think it's actually about them. And it's not. It's about him who died for us and rose again. But see, that was the downfall of the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. They wanted the people not to look and seek after God, but to look at them and be in awe of who they were. And so if anyone ever comes to this church, Harvest Hill and is in more of all of someone who gets on the stage than they are of God, and we have failed. He receives all the glory, and he is to be on full display. But what is this bounding and loosening that Jesus is talking about verse 9? What he's telling Peter and what he's telling us is the power of the church is the message. You bound it or you loosen it. One commentator writes, Peter's possession of the keys primary involves him in pointing to Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God and relaying what he has learned from him. Peter's given the keys to proclaim Jesus. And the only power that Peter had was going to be through the gospel. And that is the only power the church has, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you are ever traveling and you go visit a church or you read a Christian book, or you listen to something that is titled Christian, and the focus of the message or the focus of the church or the focus of the book is on you and not Christ, beware. Christ always has to be the focus because we're to become Christ-like. And we can learn from him. We can learn from people who follow him. If you ever go to a church service, because I know sometimes you may not be in this area, and you sit through that entire service, and there's not an opportunity for people to accept Christ or respond to Christ, beware. Our sole purpose as a church is to proclaim Christ and to deliver the message of Christ and to give people the opportunity to accept Christ. It's about Him. And this is our bounding and our loosening purpose. So with that said, let me share the gospel with you. God created you for a relationship with him. He loves you and he wants you. But it is your sin that is separating you from that relationship. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of Of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus came to live a perfect life that we couldn't. He died on the cross to take our punishment for our sin. The full wrath of God was laid upon him. They placed him in a tomb, but he rose three days later to show that he has the authority and the power to forgive sins and grant eternal life. And if you're here this morning and you've met to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, confess your need for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you don't have eternal life, but that can change today because of Christ. We have a moment of invitation, and I'm going to ask you to come down and you can sit in the front row and you come straight to me and say, Pastor Mike, I, I, I realize today I need to be saved and I need Jesus Christ in my life. I'll pray with you and we'll celebrate with you. But let's proclaim him and put him alone on display. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. And thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us all and rose so we could be forgiven and be given eternal life and become your children and heirs to your kingdom. Father, help us as a church, as a gathering of your people to remain focused on what this is all about. Yeah, we have fun here together. Yeah, we we laugh. We enjoy being with one another. But Lord, Help us to keep you in the forefront so then, people see us gathered. They know what our love is, and they know what we want them to know, that you love them. Thank you for this place. Thank you for your word. Thank you for entrusting it with us and then empowering us to deliver it. Continue to be glorified in this time and praise on the name of Jesus. Amen.